All right, let's jump into our study time of God's Word. We'll be going uh, to be in 1 Corinthians 15. We uh, embarked a couple weeks ago on a very long chapter in 1 Corinthians 15, but one of the most amazing chapters, I think, in all of Scripture. It is certainly the longest uh, teaching on the resurrection you'll find anywhere, and uh, Paul has really launched into this, uh, this, this teaching, particularly because there were some issues in Corinth um, and confusion in Corinth regarding the resurrection. Not so much the resurrection of Christ. Uh, they certainly believed in his resurrection, but um, they didn't know so much about their own. And so Paul has, uh, well, the last two weeks launched into two different arguments. The first 11 verses was really uh, an argument from uh, history. It's a historical argument that Paul just launched out on to, to say, here's proof of the resurrection of Christ. The church is one of those. Right? The church exists because, well, we believe in the resurrection of Christ. The Old Testament predicts the resurrection of Christ. The eyewitnesses that are recorded in the Gospels saw the resurrected Christ. And so the common message that has come down to the world through the centuries has been Jesus has risen. And that's part and central to the Gospel message. And so Really, it was just an argument from history, those first 11 verses. Last week, we looked at his next argument was really just a logical argument. And his whole point really comes in verse 12. If you want to look back at it, he says, Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, and he just gave a whole long history of that's what we preach and you believe it, then how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Okay, if it's true that Christ is risen, how can there be people around that say there's just no such thing as a resurrection from uh, the dead? And so he lays out seven logical consequences that would follow if there were no such thing as a resurrection from the dead. And he begins by saying, well, then Christ wouldn't be risen, right? If there's no such thing as a resurrection at all, well, then Christ wouldn't be risen. And you say you believe in that. And then he went through all of them. I'll just list them again. Preaching, our preaching would be empty, wouldn't be based on anything, right? Jesus is a dead Messiah. He didn't rise from the dead. Your faith would be empty. That's based upon a dead Messiah, then we would be false witnesses. We would be liars because we have proclaimed to see the risen Christ. And you all would still be in your sins. We would be in our sins. Right? These are terrible consequences. We would have no proof, no evidence for the fact that our, our sins have truly been forgiven because Jesus didn't rise from the dead. And then he said, consider all the believers throughout history who have perished before you. You have no idea about them either. They have no hope of a resurrection. And if all those things are true, then Christians are the most miserable uh, pitiable people on the planet, right? That was the, what he looked at last week. So if you want to consider the idea that there's no resurrection, he says, consider the logical consequences of that kind of thinking. But here, in the second part of the chapter, Paul explores a very important theological principle. And I actually mentioned it earlier when I read from Romans 6. And this is, that is this, that the, the destiny of Christians is bound up in the destiny of Christ. You've got to understand that truth. That is a very important truth. Your destiny bound up in the destiny of Christ. If Christ did not rise from the dead, then neither will you. You've got nothing to base that on. You've nothing to look forward to. On the other hand, if it's true that Christ rose from the dead, then here's the question. What does that mean for us? What does that mean for Christians? And so Paul is going to launch onto that here. He, he no longer speculates like he was doing earlier on. Uh, he reaffirms right from the beginning that Christ truly rose from the dead. In fact, look at verse 20. But now Christ is risen from the dead. So, because he's risen from the dead, we can all look forward to some positive consequences. 
so what he's going to look at here, he's going to give us really five, I will say, guarantees. Can we say it that way? Five guarantees that we can expect due to the fact that Christ rose from the dead. All those negative consequences, that was speculation, right? If he didn't rise. But he says, but, but, Christ is risen. So here's what you can expect as a Christian, knowing that Christ is risen from the dead. So that's what this passage is about. So we're going to look at verses 20 to 28 today. Let's read it right now so we get to see it in its context. Verse 20, but now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order, Christ the first fruits, afterward those who are Christ's at his coming. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death, for he has put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. Now, when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this uh, fabulous passage we have before us today. And Lord, we know that there are some difficult things in here. And so, Lord, we just pray for your spirit uh, to be with us today. We need uh, the illumination, uh, Lord, of the spirit to guide us into truth. Lord, help us to see the wonderful uh, guarantees uh, that we have in Christ because he rose from the dead. Uh, there's much to see here, much to take to heart. So, Lord, just uh, be with us guide us for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, let's just jump right into this. In verse 20, I just want to start here by taking it back to that, that verse. Verse 20, it says, Now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So again, he declares with certainty, okay, the resurrection of Christ from the dead. But he makes a very, very important and very interesting statement about Christ. He has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, what is meant by that? That is a very interesting phrase. Really, to understand that, we have to look back at the Old Testament feasts. Uh, probably the most well-known is the Feast of Passover, right? The Feast of Passover was observed on 14 Nisan, and you celebrated it for eight days, so for the 14th to the 21st. Now, today, there are three feasts that are sort of celebrated right in a row. You have Passover on the 14th, the Feast of Unleavened Bread on the 15th, and then you have the Feast of First Fruits on the 16th, all encompassed within sort of the larger Passover feast. So what was the Feast of First Fruits? I've got to take you back to it in the Le Leviticus, okay? So we've got to go way back, Genesis, Exodus, and then Leviticus, the third book, to chapter 23. And I want to take you there so you see really where this comes from. Because it's an interesting uh, correlation that Paul is, is drawing here. Leviticus chapter 23. And, and, and right away you can see this whole passage is about feasts. The feast of the Lord. He talks about the Sabbath, the Passover, the unleavened bread. And then in, starting in verse 9, the feast of first fruits. So let's look at it. Leviticus 23 verse 9. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land which I give to you, and reap its harvest, then you shall bring a sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. 
he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord to be accepted on your behalf. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. And you shall offer on that day when you wave the sheaf a male lamb of the first year without blemish as a burnt offering to the Lord. Its grain offering shall be two-tenths of an ephah, a fine flour mixed with oil, an offering made by fire to the Lord for a sweet aroma. And its drink offering shall be of wine, one-fourth of a hin. You shall eat neither bread nor parched grain nor fresh grain until the same day that you have brought an offering to your God. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwellings. So there's the feast of first fruits. People would offer the first ripe sheaf or a, a, of barley to the Lord, and, and they would do that as an act of dedicating the entire future harvest to him. On Passover, what they would do, they would mark a sheaf of grain, and they would sort of bundle it and leave it standing uh, off to the side in the field on the next a day, the first day of unleavened bread, then they would take that sheaf, they would cut it, they would prepare it for the offering on the third day. And that offering on the third day, reshit is what it's called, the priest would take that and he would wave uh, that sheaf of barley before the Lord. Now, the waving of the sheaf of barley, it's an interesting thing, and I always read that picturing like, here's a priest out there like waving, right? Like, hey, Lord! But what he's doing is this, he's saying something to God. He's taking that saying, this is an advance, all right? This is a preliminary installment of something that you've promised me, right? That, that sheaf is an example of something for the present, but it is a guarantee or a promise of more to come in the future. And so that act was to consecrate the whole harvest to the Lord, okay? Not just what they had, but it was a pledge of the whole harvest that was to come, okay? So they didn't have the whole thing, but it was a pledge of everything that was to come. Now, to help you with this so we can understand what Paul is talking about here, I want to take you to a couple other places where first fruits is used in the New Testament. One of them is in James chapter 1, verse 18. I, I have it for you. I just put it up for you on the screen. But this is how James uses it. He says, Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. There you see that first fruits there. Now, this verse speaks about regeneration, if you're kind of confused about what the whole verse is about, because he, he says he's bringing us forth by the word of truth. That's regeneration. That's the new birth, right? God regenerates sinners. He does that. We become new creations through the divine uh, power of the word of God. That's what the verse is about. Now, as believers, God has promised all of us something. We sing about it a lot, right? He's promised a new heaven and a new earth and that we will uh, have that future with him in glory. That, that is a promise given to us. In fact, in 2 Peter 3, 13, he says this, Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Okay, that's, that's where sin no longer will, will dwell. When Christ reigns on earth for a thousand years, there still will be sin. Okay, we're ultimately looking for that time. New heaven, new earth. You, you with me so far? Okay? That's promised to us as believers. So we look for that because God has promised it. But let me ask you, what is the guarantee that he's going to deliver that? We are. We are the first fruits of his creatures, right? The first evidence, you could say it that way, of God's creation. Why? Because we are each individually new creations. You're made new, right? I'm made new. That's the new birth. And so to trust that God is going to make a new heaven and a new earth, we're given an installment of that right here, right now on this planet. It is you and it is me. You are a new creation. Isn't that amazing? You're the first fruits 
of his creatures. That's exactly what he's talking about. First fruits is also used in Romans 8, 23. Look at it. It says this, not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. So just as a, as a piece of fruit, you know, begins to first appear on a tree as a, as a kind of a promise of a, of a future, you know, harvest of, of fruit, the fruit which the Spirit produces in us is sort of a, it, it's a guarantee. It, it's, a, it's a promise of something for us that one day we're going to be made new. We're going to be like Christ. Let me just give you a couple examples. Philippians chapter 3. 20 to 21, okay? It's one of those verses that promises us the truth, the fact that we will become something new. For our citizenship is in heaven, right? It doesn't matter where your citizenship is on earth. We're going through that whole citizenship thing here. Like, ultimately, it doesn't matter. Mine is, is in heaven, okay? Our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he's able even to subdue all things to himself. It's according to his power. Now, that's our hope. That those kinds of verses, we, we, we look at that and go, yes, that's our hope. Our bodies will be transformed. But what is our guarantee of that? The Holy Spirit. You get that? The Holy Spirit is your guarantee that you will become something new. Let me take you to a couple places. I know I'm going to make you walk a little bit through your Bible, but it's good for you. In 1 Corinthians, if you're there, just make a right-hand turn to Ephesians. 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, and then Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. I'm going to show you three places where we're told that the Holy Spirit is our guarantee. Ephesians chapter 1, verse, uh, verse 13. Sorry. Verse 13. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. So there you go, right? The Holy Spirit is a promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Now, there's so much there, I don't have time to unpack it, but I, I took you there to see basically this, that when you believe the truth of the gospel, you are given the Holy Spirit of promise. He's the promise. He's the guarantee of our inheritance. Until when? Until you fully receive that. Until the full redemption of the possession takes place. You are redeemed. You and I are redeemed, but we haven't fully realized that yet, right? Because we're still here on this earth. We're still here on this planet. But we're going to have that. The guarantee is the Holy Spirit of promise. If you go back to um, Corinthians, I'll take you to two places there in Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, it's mentioned here as well. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 21 to 22. 2 Corinthians 21, verse uh, 21 in chapter 1. Now, he who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us is God, who also has sealed us and given us the Spirit in our hearts, as a guarantee. There it is again, all right? The Spirit is the guarantee. And then skip along in 2 Corinthians to chapter 5, one more place. In chapter 5, this is, this is the preeminent passage that I usually read at a funeral. This is one of those passages you hear read in, in, in those settings because it is all about the resurrection of the body. It is providing hope for believers. Listen to it. Let's just look at verse 1. For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, okay, this body, is destroyed, 
we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Do you see it? For in this we groan, in what? This body, we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now, he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who also has given us, and here it is again, the Spirit as a guarantee. So, we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, yes, well, pleased rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Now you see where the context is of that verse, right? It's based on the guarantee, a guarantee that's been given to you. And so that is why you as a Christian kind of go like, I kind of want to be done with this body. We groan. Like, and, and, and sometimes our body physically makes that groaning sound, right? When you get it like, oh. <laughs> I always go, oh, it's just scripture. I'm not getting old. It's just scripture. But that is what our bodies do, right? They're getting old. They're getting tired. They're groaning to be further clothed in immortality because you're clothed in something that's mortal, right? And it's wasting away. So I just took you to those verses to show you um, other ideas of, of the first fruits being carried throughout Scripture. Now go back to our passage here in 1 Corinthians 15, okay? Now in the same way we looked at those things, Christ, having been raised from the dead first, okay, he becomes a first fruits for those who have fallen asleep or those who have died. That's what that means, okay? So that means his resurrection guarantees the resurrection of all believers who have died, right? And, and even beyond that, some will remain alive when he returns, when Paul was before King Agrippa, he testified that Christ had to suffer and he had to be the first to rise from the dead. I'll show it to you. Acts 26, 23. Look what he says. That Christ would suffer, that he would be the first to rise from the dead and would proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. Christ had to be the first to rise from the dead. Now, some of you are thinking, well, was he the first? I mean, weren't there others before him? Wasn't Lazarus? Yeah, Lazarus was raised before Jesus. So, why, why is there a distinction here? Why is Jesus the first fruits if others have been raised before him? Well, there's two distinctions I can make. One is Jesus raised Lazarus, <laughs> right, for, first of all. And second is Lazarus died again, which, first of all, had to be a bummer for Lazarus, right? I mean, you get a second chance, and like, you're going to die again, brother, and I don't know how that one's going to happen, right? So there's a guy you'll want to talk to in heaven. Lazarus, what was that like, <laughs> right? Like, not again. But he did die again, but Jesus Jesus rose, period, full stop. There was no death, okay? So he is the first fruit because he is the first one to truly rise from the dead where death has not conquered him. Does that make sense? That's the distinction we have to make. And in Romans 6, I read that at the beginning, verse 10, Paul, I just pull out one verse to remind you of, for the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. He did die a death, but guess what? He currently lives, and he lives that life out right now. So Jesus continues to live. Lazarus does not. And because Jesus lives, and he's the first fruits, Paul lists for us the guarantees that we have in him. And so we're finally getting to those guarantees. So there's five of them of, of guarantees of Christ as the first fruits. And the first is this. Here's your first guarantee. We shall be made alive. That is your guarantee number one. You will be made alive. In verses 21 and 22, look at it. 
For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. What is Paul doing here? It's very interesting. He's continuing to expound upon the truth of the fact that our our destinies are bound up in the destiny of, of Christ. And the reason is this. Before our destiny was aligned with Christ, do you know that your destiny was bound up in another? That guy's name was Adam. Okay, your destiny was that of Adam, and that is who he's talking about here. Notice in verse 21, he's, he's sort of sneaking into it, but he says, by one man came death, and by another man came resurrection. But then he tells us who these men are he's talking about in verse 22. For as in Adam, oh, there's the one man, all die. Even so in Christ, all would be made alive. All right, so before Christ came, our destinies were bound up in another man, Adam. You're linked to him because you were born under natural processes. And I know people uh, look at this and go, hold on a second. I wasn't in the garden. I didn't eat of the tree, right? Why am I being blamed uh, for Adam's mistake? You're you're not being blamed for Adam's mistake. You have Adam's nature. Your destiny is bound up in the nature of Adam. That is your destiny. Because by one man came death into the world, okay? As in Adam all die. We've all come into this. Now, there's a place that he elaborates on this much more, and it's in Romans chapter 5, and it's just too good not to go there. So I'm going to take you there, okay? Romans chapter 5, it's a left turn from 1 Corinthians. Romans chapter 5, Paul really elaborates on this uh, Adam man and Jesus man comparison in Romans chapter 5, and it's wonderful. Look at verse 12 when you get there. Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sin. Now, you've got to follow the logic Paul is using here, okay? One, okay, one man, through this one person, he's not telling us who right here, but it's Adam. Sin entered the world, and, and through sin, death, okay? Then he says, thus death spread to all men. Now, how does he know that? Because all men have died, right? I mean, death has a 100% success rate. That's what he's saying. He's like, so just use your common sense. Death spread to all men. But now notice where he goes. Because why? All sinned. Do you see the connection there? He says, so what it proves for him is that that means no one is without sin because all have died because death came through what? Sin. And now all that came through one man. And there he is. He's talking about Adam here. And now he's going to go and contrast the two men. Skip down to verse 15. And just notice what he does here. But the free gift is not like the offense. For if by the one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. So you have the, the contrast there. Through one and his offense, many have died. But through the other, there's a gift that abounded to many. Do you see the comparison there? Okay. Which destiny are you bound up in? This is what he's having you think about. Look at verse 16. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For the judgment which, which came from one offense resulted in condemnation. But the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. You have a future condemnation, justification being contrast. Verse 17, for if by one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. So in one, death reigned. 
In the other, we will reign in life. And then in verse 18, he, he uses condemnation and justification again. But let me take you to verse 19. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. There you have it. Jesus came and perfectly obeyed the will of the Father to the cross. And so your destiny now ha has changed. You had one destiny. It was the destiny of Adam, right? But all those who are now in Christ, who have partaken of the divine nature, you no longer share in the destiny of Adam. Your destiny is now bound up in the destiny of Christ. We will all be made alive. Going back to our passage, that's what he says. We shall all be made alive. Alive. Now, you have to remember here that he's talking about um, believers here. I, see, I think some look at this and refer to all human beings. Well, that can be true because, let me tell you, all human beings will be made alive. You know, there's no one that's going to be remaining in the grave. There is a resurrection for all. Remember, we looked at them last week in John chapter 5. There's a resurrection of life and a resurrection of condemnation. So everybody on the planet is going to get a resurrection. So you can look at this and say, well... All will be raised. All will be made alive. Absolutely. But he's specifically talking about, so in Christ, those who are in Christ. He's focusing on uh, believers uh, here. All right. So the first point, the first guarantee is, that is very simple. We're all going to be made alive. And very simply because your destiny is bound up in the destiny of Christ. All right. Now, as we go into the next verse, it's really interesting. Paul begins to build in this almost, almost to tell us how that will happen, which is probably a question you're having, right? Well, how is that going to happen? Well, that's what he's going to tell us with the next guarantee. Guarantee two, we are Christ's and he will come for us. We are his and he's going to come for us. Verse 23, look at it. But each one in his own order, Christ the first fruits, and afterward, those who are Christ's at his coming. Now, Brace yourselves. We're going to go into some stuff here. Paul says something very fascinating here. There's going to be a sequence. All right? That's what he's saying. There's going to be an order. There's an order. There's a timetable of unfolding events. We know that. We have other books to read in the Bible that tell us these things, Revelation being one of them. And he tells us here that the, the, the order, the timetable, the preeminence is reserved for Jesus. It's for his son, right? The son of God. Here we go. So he says here, verse 23, each one in his own order, Christ the first fruits. He had to be the first one to rise from the dead first. Death had to be defeated. Something had to happen so that you can have a new destiny. That's the first thing, all right? But then he says, afterward, after that, there are those who are at Christ at his coming. Now, remember, we're still talking about when we will should be, shall be made alive. We are going to be made alive um, when Christ comes for us. Now, when is Jesus coming? There's the question everybody knows, right? <laughs> we don't know, right? Scripture re repeatedly warns that nobody will know the day or the hour. We went through Matthew 24 last year, right? Four times in Matthew 24 repeats that phrase. Nobody will know the day or the hour. In fact, in, in chapter 25, it repeats it again, that no one will know the day or the hour, and yet we still try to come up with the day or the hour. But no one will know it. But what are we given? We are given a general sequence, aren't we? We are given a, a general outline of events and we're told that the resurrection takes place here, we're told, at his coming. Now, let me try to break this down for you as simply as I can. There are two great resurrections, John chapter 5, resurrection of life, resurrection of condemnation, okay? The resurrection that takes place at his coming is also known as several other things. Now, I just told you in John 5, 29, it's known as the resurrection of life. 
In Acts 24, 15, you can write that down, and also Luke 14, 14, it's also called the resurrection of the just, okay? So not just the resurrection of life uh, or those that are his, his coming, but the resurrection of the just. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 35, it's called the better resurrection. And in Revelation, and we're going to go there later, Revelation chapter 20, verse 4 and verse 5, it's called the first resurrection. Now, stay with me. That, those four names are all talking about a general resurrection of believers, okay? However, we find that as we go through Scripture, and I don't hold your seats. I know not everyone believes in everything we're about to talk about here, but Scripture teaches us that resurrection of believers takes place in stages. Yes, there are two great categories we all fall into, resurrection of life, resurrection of condemnation. But within the resurrection of life, there are different stages. We're at Calvary Chapel. Calvary chapels generally believe in a pre-tribulational rapture of the church. So I am going to teach that, knowing full well that others have different views, and we can completely disagree on those things and be okay. We'll just fight it out out the parking lot. That's it. But <laughs> just kidding. I'm totally funny. But let me take you to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, if I could, okay? Make a right-hand turn, 1 Thessalonians chapter Four. I just want to be thorough in, in understanding what Paul is talking about here, okay? In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, this is one of the, the, the commonly referred to rapture passages. I'm just going to take you to two verses here, verses 16 and verse 17, okay? Verse 16, verse 17. Starting verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Now, uh, here in this chapter, there's some distinctions that we have to pull out to, to, and recognize that they are, they are indeed different than the passages that refer to Jesus' second coming. And I'm just going to point some of those out. Now, lots of questions come up. We're in casual settings. We're at barbecues and beaches and stuff, and, and these things come up. But no one has their Bible, and no one has notes, but you have both now. So take notes now, all right? I'm just giving you the reasons that I, I can because I have it in front of me as well. Here's some of the distinctions you have to recognize. At the rapture, which is, this is a rapture passage, we're told that Christ comes for his saints, for his people, right? That's what we're told. But at the second coming, and all you do is go to Revelation 19 and read, is that he comes with the saints, okay? So here, he's coming for them. He doesn't have them yet, but Revelation 19, boom, the saints are already with him when he returns to earth. That's one distinction. Second one, at the rapture, Christ meets his saints in the air. Notice that there's nothing referring to Jesus, you know, setting foot on, 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 the, on the earth here. But in the second coming, it's very, very clear. You read Old Testament passages like Zechariah 14, and, and he's, he's planting his feet on Mount Zion, okay? He's, he's here, and in Revelation 19, he's coming to destroy and to conquer. The rapture passages, here's another uh, distinction, have no hint of judgment. This has no hint of judgment here, and either does 1 Corinthians 15. Just to give you a heads up, we're going to be going into that uh, not too long. He's building up to another rapture passage, okay? There's no hint of judgment here, but when you read about the second coming, it's all about judgment. So those are some distinctions we have to, uh, to make. Another one is in Revelation 19. When you read it, it doesn't mention believers being uh, caught up 
uh, raptured. It doesn't mention the resurrection of dead believers and any of that uh, as the rapture passages do. So if there is a resurrection, when is that happening? If it's not happening in these other places that it's taught, we do have to face those facts. Another one that I didn't write down, but it just always occurs to me when you read uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, and, and our men just went through it. In fact, we just, we ended with this chapter. It ends in verse 18, therefore comfort one another with these words, okay? They were discomforted because the believers had died, and they thought, well, they missed out on the resurrection. And so Paul says, no, no, no that's not how it's going to happen, right? He's going to come, and don't worry, those dead will be resurrected. They'll go to him, and he's explaining the whole thing. But if you're still going to have to endure the horrors of the tribulation, I find this to be not very comforting. He says, but comfort one another with these words. I don't think their greatest concern will be, oh, what about those who had died beforehand when they still got the tribulation to go through? So it's one of the things I kind of look at and go, I don't know that I buy that. Um, so that is one of the issues we have to look at. But either way, I know that people don't all agree on a rapture, but let me take you to some other places. That would be one stage. There's still other two stages. You have the Old Testament saints and the tribulation saints to deal with, okay? Old Testament saints are prophesied about in Daniel chapter 2. If you want to turn there, I'll just read it to you real quick if, you, if you're not going to go there. But Daniel chapter, I'm sorry, Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. Daniel chapter 12, I'll read verse 1 just to go into it. It says this, At that time Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people. And remember, Daniel's people are the Jews. And there shall be a time of trouble, such as never was since there was a nation, even to that time. And I went through Matthew 24, and we hit this verse several times to show you that three different places in Scripture were told that there is a time that comes upon the earth that is like no other time. Now, they can't all be their own times like no other time. They all have to be talking about the same time. That's no other time. And one of the says it's the time of Jacob's trouble. That's it. The time of Jacob's trouble. The time of trouble that's promised upon Israel. And so this is a time speaking about that great tribulational period. Now, notice when it says uh, the resurrection will happen. And everyone who is found written in, uh, the, oh, sorry, at the, your time, your people shall be delivered. And everyone who is found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth. Not all. Many. But we're told that everyone is going to have a resurrection from the dead. Jesus says it in John chapter 5. So why Many. Well, there's no you know, explicit thing here, but this would seem to suggest that not all would need raising at this point because the church would already be raptured by this point because they're going through the time such as never was since there was a nation. That's one of those uh, things you have to look at. But Old Testament saints are promised to be delivered, and they're promised to have a resurrection. And he says, many of those who sleep in the dust shall, uh, in the earth shall wake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Now, when will the Old Testament saints be raised specifically? There's no explicit scripture, but there is a passage in Matthew 8, 11, And it says this, it mentions the patriarchs sitting down in the kingdom of heaven. It says this, and I say to you that many will come from east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Now, why will they be asked to sit down? That, the connotation there is to, is to, to fellowship, to sup, to have a meal. And many think that that passage has to do with the marriage supper of the Lamb. Have you heard about the marriage supper of the Lamb? It's in Revelation 19. I know we're jumping around a bit, but we're going to do it. If you want to follow me, you can to Revelation 19. It's very important that you see it. Revelation 19, verse 6. John writes this. 
And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude as the sound of many waters, and as the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory. And here it is. For the marriage of the lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. And to her, it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, write, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the lamb. And he said to me, these are the true sayings of God. So first of all, you have this marriage supper of the lamb and we're told right, that the lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. Now, to understand this, you have to understand Jewish weddings. We, we, can't, we can't even get in our minds around what is taking place here without understanding a Jewish wedding. A Jewish wedding had three stages, and the first stage was in the, the engagement stage, and that was when the arrangement was made by both sets of parents, right, for the two uh, to be married. The, the parents made that arrangement. I think that should come back. I think we should continue to do that. I don't know. I got a 16-year-old daughter. I'm just saying. <laughs> and, and, and that was a legally, legally binding agreement, okay? Now, during that period, the husband and the wife each had a duty. The husband's job was to go away and to prepare a place for the wife. The wife's job, very simple job, was just to prepare herself for her husband, make herself looking good, right? That's, what she, that's, that's her job right? You got a year to make yourself beautiful, ladies. That's what it was. Now, notice the passage Revelation 19 says, right? It says that the wife has made herself ready. That time has come. The, the wife has prepared herself for this time. What has the, the husband been doing? Well, preparing a place. Now, who could these two people be? Well, the groom is Jesus. And in John chapter 14, verse 2, we're told this, Jesus said this to his disciples, and my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Now, that is a commonly referred to rapture passage as well, and I think for good reason, because that is the job of the groom, is to go and prepare a place. And Jesus says, that's what I'm going to go do. The job of the church make herself beautiful for her husband. And in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 2, we're told this, for I'm jealous for you with godly jealousy, for I have betrothed you to one husband, who's speaking to the church, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. The church is the virgin. Make herself ready for her husband. That is the engagement period. That's the period that we're in right now. Christ is preparing a place for us. The church is making herself ready right? The one thing you should be thinking about in, in making yourself like, like I should be just making myself ready to meet my Lord. That is your only, that's your only focus, right? We want to be like him. We want to be pure. We want to have those fine, clean, bright linens that are the righteous acts of the saints. Notice those things, right? That are going to be given to you as the bride. Now that's the first stage. The second stage is the presentation stage. That was the, the bridegroom went to claim uh, the bride and he took her to his home. When will that be accomplished? That's the rapture. When the, the groom comes and takes the church to the place that he's been preparing for her all this time. And then the third stage is the wedding feast. That is the ceremony and the celebration, which could last at that time up to a week. I mean, it was just to be a week of festivities. So according to Revelation 19.9, John was commanded to write these words down. He said, blessed are those who are called 
to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, it's a long way to get to where we're going here, but stay with me. So there are people who are called or invited to that marriage supper. That can't be the church. The bride isn't invited to her own wedding, right? You invite others, okay? So who are those that are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb? Many believe that's the Old Testament saints. When Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob come from east, north, west, and they sit down in the kingdom of heaven. So it's mentioned in Revelation 19, and it's prior to Jesus coming in Revelation 20. So it seems likely that the Old Testament saints are resurrected just prior to the second coming of Christ. I believe that to be the case. The other group are the tribulation saints. Now, this, if this one doesn't get you, I don't know what will, okay? Revelation chapter 20, it's written, okay? You go to Revelation chapter 20. Here's the only place in Revelation you see a resurrection. Now, if you don't see this in the context of the church being raptured, it's a very odd passage. It makes no sense at all, all right? But look at it. Revelation chapter 20, verses 4 and 5. And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. And then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Now, this is referred to as the first resurrection because the next one that's going to come is the resurrection of condemnation. Remember I told you the first resurrection, the resurrection of life, the resurrection of justice, all talking about the same resurrection? It's the resurrection of believers, even though they happen at different stages. And the reason it's finally mentioned here is because there are no more resurrections of believers. This is the last one. The next one that happens is that all those that are raised at the great white throne judgment for condemnation. This is the last of it. So he says, this is it. This is the first resurrection. The resurrections of believers are complete at this point. Now, when you look at this, okay, these people are resurrected. It says they lived. It was the souls that John saw, beheaded souls. But then it says they lived and reigned. So they have come to life. That's a resurrection you're reading now. If the church were raptured prior to this event, then it makes sense to single out these martyred dead, right? To highlight their resurrection as a stage of the resurrections. But can you just look at that? If the church has not been raptured before this, if there hasn't been any other rapture, this is a very odd passage. Why would you ignore all of the martyred dead of generations past preceding this, right? And the church as a whole, just to highlight this relatively small group of people who are very specific. They've been beheaded for their witness to Jesus, for the word of God, because they didn't worship the beast or his image, and they didn't receive the mark on their foreheads or hands, which is a specific tribulation time. Does that make sense? So there's one resurrection highlighted, and it's not of everybody. It's only of people who were beheaded. So it's very odd. So I believe that to be a third resurrection. Those are tribulation saints. Those who are those who professed faith in Christ during the tribulation, which, by the way, when you read Revelation, church is never mentioned right? When you get past chapter three with the letters to the churches, there is no mention of the church. So I believe those three are the resurrection of life or the resurrection of jest or going back to our uh, passage. I know we kind of like wormed our way around a bit. All of those are those who are Christ's at his coming. The next resurrection after that is the resurrection of, of condemnation. That's what follows. Now, Paul is going in order. He's following the stages Okay, following those stages of the resurrected life, there's another period that comes, and it's another guarantee for us. Number three is this. The earth will be restored to Christ's rule, verses 24 and 25. Then comes the end, 
when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. Now that phrase, till he has put all enemies under his feet, is a reference to Psalm 110, verse 1. And I'll just put it up for you just so you know it. It says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Now, this is an object of the kingdom. The object of that kingdom is to put down all rule and authority. When Jesus comes and reigns, all right, after that uh, Revelation 4, and, and you saw the souls of the beheaded, right? After that, Christ is he's going he's gonna to reign for a, a thousand years, okay? He's reigning. And while he's reigning there, he is doing this. He's putting down all rule and authority, everything under him. Now, that's not going to go over so well, right? But he's going to do that. And I think the reason that happens is to give man the best chance possible to submit to his rule. Because at that time, Satan is bound up. He's chained up. He's bound for a thousand years. He's no longer uh, allowed to go out and deceive people. There's no external, if you could say it this way, no external evil influence. I think what happens is it proves that really man is just evil in the heart. That's ultimately where it dwells. Going back to Revelation 20, beginning of verse 1, I'll just read it to you. It says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit, and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and he bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more until the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. So there you have it. Satan's bound up. Christ will uh, rule and reign for a thousand years. Man will still be wicked and will still follow Satan. And I think it just proves that his heart is ultimately evil. And you continue reading in verse seven of that passage, because we already read uh, verses four and five with the martyred saints being resurrected. It says, now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison. He will go out to deceive the nations, which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. And they went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So Jesus will be victorious over his enemies. But that thousand years is a time to, to do that, till he puts all his enemies under his footstool. That's the idea. It, it harkens back to, that's the practice that they would do back in, even in um, Old Testament, when you read about it. They'd put their foot on the neck of their, their conquered foe just to demonstrate, I have conquered you, to put them into submission. Jesus will be victorious over all those enemies. Those who chose to stay aligned with Adam, whose destinies did not align with Christ, that ends in death. And guess what? There's still one more enemy to defeat, which actually comes to us as another guarantee, going back to our passage. And that is this, that death will be defeated. Death will be defeated. Verse 26, the last enemy that will be destroyed is death, for he has put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he put all things under him is accepted. So let's look at that first part. Satan's great weapon was death. Christ destroyed that power at the cross, right? Hebrews 2.14 says, Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, okay? But Satan will not be permanently divested of that weapon. Okay, he, 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 he 
that was his great weapon, and he destroyed the power of it, but the, whole, the weapon's still there. People still die, right? That won't happen until Psalm 8-6 is fulfilled, and that's what's being quoted. Psalm 8-6, you have made him to have dominion over the work of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. Everything has to be put under his feet, all things. And when that happens, death itself will be defeated. When will that be? Well, that's at the end of the thousand-year reign. And I'll just put that verse up to you. It's in chapter 20, verse 14. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. So death is, is destroyed even after the thousand-year reign. Now, notice a quick thing, and we're going to finish up really briefly here. In verse 27, he has put all things under his feet, but when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. That's very interesting, right? Unless you should be confused about what Paul means here, by, by all things are put under him, there's one exception is what he's saying. There's one who is accepted. There's, not, there's one who's not going to be put under Christ. Who is it? It's he who put all things under him. Who is that? The Father. You got it. That's God the Father. And that's the final uh, guarantee, that God will get the glory. God will get the glory. Verse 28. Now, when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him that God may be all in all. That's incredible. Jesus will find ultimate completion in the glory of God the Father, and he will return to his place within the Trinity. And that place is subject to God, right? He's subject to him. Remember our, our study of 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3? Well, I want you to note the head of every man is Christ, the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Remember that? That's because he subjected himself to the will of the Father, and Christ has been, and he will remain subject to God the Father. That will give him glory. Glory will ultimately go to the Father. Remember, Jesus said this in John 17, when he was still on this earth, in verse 4, I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. You know, that's the ultimate goal of the church as well, is to glorify the Father. Jesus lives for that as well. And one of the guarantees here is that everything will be put under him, but guess what? Jesus will happily subject himself to the will of the Father. He will remain under him. Everything under him except God the Father. Some amazing guarantees, some amazing truths that we have, and all of these point to, guys, where we started with. There's a new heaven. There's a new earth. And I just wanted to close by reading it in Revelation 21 because it's absolutely fascinating all things made new is how uh, it's titled in my, in my Bible. All things made new. This is the new heaven and the new earth, which, going back to our first thing, is a guarantee for you. Why? Right? Because you're a new creation, right? You're the first fruits of his creatures. But look what he says. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also there was no more sea. And then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said to me, it is done. 
I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He overcomes, shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. It's amazing when you read about this, Jesus isn't singled out. It's almost like we've gone back to the beginning. It's just the triune God. It's just God is here, and our future is with God, and he will wipe away every tear, and guess what? We're his son. We're his children. Incredible. That's your future. You can bank on that because of the five guarantees we saw today, right? It's a guarantee because your destiny is bound up in the destiny of Christ. Let me pray. God, thank you so much for your word to us today. What a, what a rich passage. There's even so much more we could probably pull out of that. But Lord, um, Lord we just thank you so much for uh, all that your word teaches us, Lord, about our future, Lord, that we will, we will be made new. Lord, we will be new creations. Uh, we, we, know, we know that. We are new creations now. So we know that we'll be further clothed in immortality. We're told in John that we will be like you when we see you. Lord, we know uh, that, that uh, this, this earth will pass away and that you're going to come uh, for us and that you will uh, put all things under your, your feet, that you will defeat even death itself. And ultimately, Lord, all of these things will, will ultimately just give glory to God the Father. And that's why we will be there in your presence to simply give glory to you. That's the reason we exist, Lord. We, your people, the church, we're here to give you glory. Oh, Lord, I just pray that your people were encouraged today, Lord, that as they think about their future, they think about eternity with you, Lord, that that is a fact that they, they can take to the bank. Lord, that is a guarantee from from you, and we know it because you rose from the dead. Oh, thank you, Lord, so much for your word to us today. We pray that you'd bless us, encourage us, and strengthen us, we pray in Jesus' name.